Episode 226 of the PJ Archive comprises two interviews I did with the Australian tennis star Pat Cash, who won the Wimbledon men's singles title in 1987 and then became the first winner to climb into the stands to celebrate with his entourage, a tradition that has continued ever since. Pat was the world number one junior player in 1981, won the boys' singles at Wimbledon in 1982, and turned professional later that year. In 1988, he reached career-high rankings of four in singles and six in doubles. He was a key member of Australia's Davis Cup winning teams in 1983 and 1986, and was a singles finalist at the Australian Open in 1987 and 1988. Since then, he's gone on to become a successful coach and commentator and competed on the senior circuit. My first interview with Pat took place in London in late 2000. Top tennis players at their peak are supposed to practice about eight hours a day. How much do you practice now or train? Well, I don't know. The top tennis players used to train eight hours, but, uh, you know, I do two hours a day um, of stuff. Depending on if I'm playing a tournament, I'll, I'll get close. I might play three hours of tennis. I mean, I do this combination of gym, uh, Pilates work, uh, tennis, running, uh, and boxing, and swimming. I, I just do a bit of I try and do a bit of everything now. Um, it used to be just tennis, 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 you know, weights, heavy weights, and sprints and stuff like that. And I still like doing some of that, but whew, that's tough work. I like the boxing. Yeah, oh, just punching the bag and, and right. speed bag and stuff you like that. Mickey Rourke and no, 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 no. She's not that tough. Those guys are brutal. They're, they're animals. I don't know how they do that boxing stuff. In the 80s, how many hours would you have spent training then? I would have trained up to about six hours a day. Right. You know, pretty intensive stuff. I mean, it depends on it depends on what you are. I mean, it's anybody can go out there and train for eight hours a day, but you know, you're sitting around and walking, talking, you know. It's not the way to do it, you know, I believe you get on with it and you really work hard. You train like you play a tennis match. And I learnt that from Jimmy Connors. Sort of growing up learning from these legends, it was, um, to watch Jimmy Connors play a practice match and train, you know, practice set, it was a joke. You just got swore he was in the final Wimbledon, you know, even he was on the back practice court out in somewhere. He was just tearing around, diving all over the place and... You know, and that was the way I went, wow, you know, no wonder he plays like that in the matches. And so that was, that's the way I like to train. I've sort of eased up a bit now. But Do you often wonder how many tournaments you would have won had you not been so plagued with injury? Sometimes, but only briefly. The what-ifs, it's a bit of a... It's a very easy thing as a, as a retiring athlete or retired, semi-retired athlete to say, oh, what if, you know, or I could have only if I did this, I could have done that. No, that's true. You know, you have good luck and you have bad luck and whatever. But, you know, the way I figure is that even though it was tough at the time to realise that, you know, the things that were thrown in front of me, like these injuries, were actually blessings in disguise, you know. Things. How could they have been blessings? I mean, it deprived you of an even more glittering career. Yeah, well, maybe I didn't need that. You know, maybe I didn't deserve it. Maybe I shouldn't have had it. Um, you know, I met, uh, you know, through those times I had, you know, had my children and had my time off and enjoyed the other parts of my life which were so very much, uh, you know, neglected by, you know, heavy grind of the tennis circuit. You know, I used to take things very, very seriously. So to me, the tennis circuit was, you know, seriously work. 
when I used to work hard all the time and not much play. So then when I got injured, I sort of had a chance to, to play and go out and go to some nightclubs and see rock concerts and play some music and do all that sort of stuff that I never had a chance to do. Kids, stuff that, you know, playing garage with your, with, your, with your mates in a band or something like that, you know. I never did that as a kid, you know. I didn't, I didn't do that. I've never, never been surfing in my life, you know. So there's a lot of stuff I missed out on that I sort of made up during those times. Was tennis in your family? My mum and dad played just socially. And my dad was a football professional Australian, uh, Australian rules football player. I think he got five. I think he got five pounds a match or something back in those days. <laughs> yeah, so he was an Australian rules football player. So they were in the, very much in a sport, but no, not not particularly tennis, just social. So what started you off at eight years old? They didn't really. They were just um, they, they just played uh, played socially. I came and joined them. You know, got a couple of lessons, and you know, away I went. You know, it was nothing. Nothing really fancy. I, you know, I liked playing. I liked playing Aussie Rules, and I liked playing tennis. And those are the two things that I really loved doing. Was it a real toss-up between the two? It was. I used to play both of them a lot right until I was, you know, 14, um, and realised that, you know, that I was. The problem with Aussie Rules it was it's a season thing. It's a seasonal thing, and, and you go from under 14 to under 15 to under 16. All of a sudden, by the time I was 14, I was found myself beating almost all the kids in juniors in Australia, including the 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. Only, yeah, there was only a couple I couldn't beat. By the time I was 16, I was beating all the men, you know, in professionals, tennis. You know, I'm, I was the youngest player. I don't think I am anymore, but I was the youngest player ever to win an, eight, an official tour event. You know, so all of a sudden I just shot through them. Why do you think you were so incredibly successful so young? Do you think it was natural talent or were you a hard worker or what? I think a lot of it's natural talent, without a doubt. I didn't think, I didn't really understand the hard work like I did later on. You know, I don't know, it's a good question. I was quite big for my age, I was quite strong. So I suppose I had a slight strength advantage over most of the kids and I could actually compete with the men. You know, I think that's like Boris Becker, you know, he came out at 17 and, you know, he, he, hit, he hit the ball and he was, he was as strong as a, you know, as a grown man, you know, which he, which he was really. He was tall, he's tall, but I mean, you were very muscular, which is quite unusual for a tennis player though. Tennis players are all different shapes and sizes, you know. John McEnroe stick thin, really. Yeah, oh, he's quite he's quite strong. Yeah, he's quite. Some of the guys are. Some of the guys aren't. Um, it, you know, it's all different types. It takes all. That, that's a great thing about tennis. Doesn't matter what your body shape is. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, I suppose you'd say somebody like Stefan Edberg would be the ideal mm-hmm. shape. Really strong legs, but um, not not too heavy that he couldn't run for three or four hours. You know, but you know, you look at Lindsay Davenport. You know, she's a, I don't know if she's number one still or not, but. Um, you know, she's a big girl. You look at her and you say, "Well, there's no way she's going to be a tennis player." You know, put her in shot put or something, female yeah. shot put. But there you go. Mm. So there's no real typical body body type, and that's what's great about. It. That's a good thing about tennis. What do you think about the the muscle aspect of the women's game at the moment? Aside from Moresmo and the Williams sisters, I think they're all they are certainly all carrying extra weight, and they shouldn't be. So I don't see them. I don't see them as, as in great. People talk about how fantastic the Williams sisters are physically. I see them about the only ones that are fit, you know. And that's coming from a coach and a, you know somebody who's completely unbiased. Yeah, I'm not slagging women's tennis or whatever, but got in trouble that last time you did. Oh, I, ha- oh, I have, but no, only the truth hurts, you know. <laughs> the truth hurts, but it's not like it used to be Martina Navratilova. She's Chris Evert, you know. I mean, incredibly fit. Anna Mandlikova. They used to work hard. The girls these days, they can take it real easy and make millions of dollars, you know. And that's, you tend to see that a little bit on the men's circuit as well. 
you know, people are prepared to sort of just cruise along, you know, not, don't really have to, uh, you know, make the top 10 or make the top 20, win a Grand Slam title, and they still walk away with millions of dollars. Are you glad you went into tennis when you did? Yes. Yeah, well, I didn't really, hadn't, never really thought about it. I suppose it'd be, it, was, it was a good time. It was a good time. This tennis was just booming, just, just starting to boom. It was, it was a good time to get into tennis. Um, you know, Borg and McEnroe was, were really, and Connors and Villas, and uh, that era was just starting off. And, uh, you know, by the time I sort of broke in there, I was watching... You know, I was starting to study off the circuit, watching McEnroe and these guys, you know, Borg and McEnroe, you know, fights. And, and then I came through and Boris Becker came through and Stefan Edberg and Yannick Noah and the Conte and, you know, they just, the names just keep going and going and going, you know. And Mats Willander, of course, uh, Ivan Lendl, you know, he was the original sort of first modern day player, you know, he's a real robot type of guy. So it was a great era for me to play in. You know, I kind of wish that I did, wasn't in that era because there's just so many good champions. Well, you look know. at it now, you'd have had, well, you've had a real tough time against Pete Sampras. Yeah, Sampras is incredible. But yeah, you're right. There's, just now they're starting, some other players are coming through. Yeah. Just, just now. But boy, it's a nice period there for, about, for the last yeah. seven, eight, seven, eight years. I mean, no disrespect to Pete at all. He deserved every title. But there's very little competition that he's had, apart from Tim Henman playing well and Agassi. Apart from that, he's really just hasn't really played too many great players. Because just to go back to your story, and you said you were a bit undecided about Australian rules football or tennis. Did that mean that you weren't quite so driven in tennis as perhaps you should have been? At the early age, I was. Yeah, no, I just I just enjoyed it. You know, I was just out there playing. I didn't really understand the aspect, the full fitness aspect of it. And it wasn't until uh, I hurt my back, my back, I realised I was, wasn't strong enough, and I needed to hit the gym and do all that sort of stuff and um, I kind of went overboard, went fanatical about my fitness and my diet and my amino acids and everything else and just through all the injuries throughout my career I realised that now what I've done is completely um, redesigned my whole you know physical out, output in you know, my whole training system you know you only know I mean how, how do you know unless you go through it you know. <laughs> in, in 87 did you know deep down you'd win Wimbledon? Yeah I did yeah, it's a funny thing because I, I did deep down know that, and I did say it once in the press. I said oh, I'm going to win Wimbledon next year or this year. And my dad called me out. He said, "Be careful what you say. You know, keep your mouth shut. I wouldn't put any extra pressure on you and all this sort of stuff." He said, "Just keep your mouth shut," because it made I made headlines in Australia. I suppose I'm going to win Wimbledon. Don't care. Yeah. So so yeah, but I, I sort of deep down I did know it. Yeah, it was one of those one of those funny things when. People tell you for so long that you're going to win Wimbledon, you actually start believing it. In Australia, they just because they hadn't had any Wimbledon champions or really any sporting heroes, yeah. apart from Greg Norman, really, and um, there's millions of them. There's everything. Yeah, that's right. Apart from beginner's luck, you know. That's what I say. But why do you think you did win Wimbledon in '87? Well, I think I just hit the right, hit good form at the right time. You know, I had luck with me. I played. I was in great fitness. I had great form. Had a good draw. You know, played the players that suited my my style. You know, all the things that you, you need to win a big title. You know, but mainly it was just it was my year. And that was I was just playing great. Played a lot of matches on the grass. Played Davis Cup matches. I was really toughened. And when I got there, bam! You know, I lost one set in the tournament. Just had a great year. Is that the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? No, no. I think the birth of my children has been the greatest thing. But as far as a career, yeah, I'd say uh, 
Uh, I would say so for sure. Yeah, Davis Cup's great as well, though playing for your country. Yeah, Can't beat that feeling, winning a Davis Cup match. We we did. We did a great year in '86 and '83. We uh, it was a real good team effort. It was fantastic because we were all we were all um, not, the guys in the team were not great. We none of us were that highly ranked, but we ended up winning. Mm. So that was a, that was a great thrill. The '86, I was sort of kind of expecting to win, and and I held up. You know, and there were some tough matches. Uh, that's a great feeling. Yeah. How much of a dream though was it to win Wimbledon? Well, that's that's what for, for Aussies, what we you know starting off uh, playing tennis and hearing about you know the Rod Lavers and the Neil Frasers and the Roy Emersons and the John Newcombs. It was all about Wimbledon. You know, I mean, U.S. Open, okay, French Open, okay. You know, Australian Open, of course, was important, but it was all Wimbledon. You know, that's 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 the tournament. That was the tournament that the. I heard about growing up, there's a tournament we stayed up in the middle of the night to watch. That was always the one, you know. How much did it live up to expectations though? I mean, you'd built up for so many years this dream of winning. So when you actually won, did it live up to that? Mm, No, no. I don't think there's a sportsman in this world who will actually tell you that the actual feeling after the, the whistle is gone or whatever is actually as good as the feeling they'd imagine it to be. Because usually they're concentrating so hard that you know, you can't. It's, it's hard to sort of let your hair down like that. To a certain extent, I kept letting, wanting it to sink in. I was waiting for it to sink in that, that I'd won. And you hear that, oh, you know, it hasn't sunk in, it hasn't sunk in yet. You know, you hear that a lot about sportsmen. Mm-hmm. Go, oh, you know, just it hasn't sunk in yet. The fact that I won it, well, I've got news from it's never going to. Mm. You know, it's because what happens is that, believe it or not, there's the journey is part of is is a great great thrill, thrill. and the actual winning of a title or winning of whatever. Is a great sense of pride. The pride is is overwhelming, but the joy is not quite is not there, not like you expect it to be. What difference did it make to your life? Oh, it made heaps of difference. Yeah, I get into nightclubs for free now, which is the most important thing. It, it's amazing that people's attitudes towards you. I mean, you're a great player one minute, and then you're a legend the next. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's quite disturbing. I think in Australia, it certainly was very off-putting, and very disturbing time, a lot of pressure on me and I didn't really enjoy that. You know, things things change, you, just, you tend to, people tend to think that you're public property, but you know, the other side of the coin is you get the opportunity to, you know, play where you want to play and, and uh, you know, I'm still playing senior tournaments now, so, you know, it was clearly is the greatest thing in my, uh, you know, my career that could ever happen by a long shot. Hmm. But I mean, you, you were still playing the circuit, you still had to carry on with your same life. Hmm. But did you find just more people interested in watching you play and talking to you and so on? Yeah, yeah, for the time being. Tennis people are fickle though. When the next person comes along, they, want, they prefer to watch him or, or whatever. Certainly the people who run tennis tournaments, they're, you know, it's pretty dis- they're pretty disappointing in the way that... And tennis associations, very, very disappointing. You know, for instance, you know, I could win two Davis Cups for them. I played in three Davis Cup finals. And, you know, the last one, I was actually coaching Philippoussis, one of the guys in it, never invited me down to the... It was in Nice. Never invited me down to the tournament, mm. the Tennis Association, you know. I mean, it's just like, oh, mm. that's, the way, that's the way they treat you, you know. It's disappointing because I grew up, in a, in a, you know, as a, as a team sort of mm. feeling and yet not, not being invited is kind of... Uh, it hurts you, so... Can I, it's sorry, fickle. Can I just go back to your uh, Wimbledon time? How much did you enjoy the sort of heartthrob status that you had? Oh, it was fun. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I mean, it really was. It's, uh, Wimbledon's incredible because 
you know, it's pretty quiet the rest of the year, England. All of a sudden, Wimbledon turns up and the screaming girls turn up, and and it's it is you know you take it with a uh, you know a grain of salt. It's it's just fun. You know, what was the most extreme example of fan worship of you? Oh, I had a girl, I had a girl fly over from Australia and come and knock on my door in Paris, a hotel room in Paris. That was that was pretty wild. Had do? one chick, had one chick actually claimed that she, and I'm sure she did, she, that she climbed the top of Ayers Rock to find a feather, eagle feather, and she brought it and, and gave it to me. That's quite romantic. It is very romantic, <laughs> except she was a bit of a psycho. So, oh dear. Yeah. And how many sort of fan letters did you get? And did, what sort of things did they send you in the post and stuff? Well, I tell you, I used to get I used to get heaps of things, but they stop once you get married on the on the dot yeah. like that. You forget about it. Married, I wasn't. I had kids though. Oh, so, right, yeah. so I got a bit, but I didn't get a a huge amount. Once certainly once I had the second my second my daughter, that was uh, that slowed down a bit, and then. Um, you know, and it was, so it was they had, had waves. It was it was up and down. <laughs> what was the story behind the headbands? Because you used to carry stacks of them in your bag yeah. and, and then throw them into the crowd. Did you have lots of them specially made? I do now. Then I didn't. Then I didn't. I I used to sort of have to hold on to them quite sparingly. But it just started off. I was just really really thrilled to win a match, a tough match in Wimbledon one year, and so I had a bunch of headbands and wristbands, and so I threw a few a few of them out and. Next thing you know, there was, you know, that was like, you, if you want to go and get a headband and memorabilia, go and check Pat Cash's match out. So then I started getting all these fans to come along and started screaming and yelling, and I just went from there. And I thought, yeah, why not? You know, that's a good, it's good fun for everybody. To Is it difficult to experience that for a few years and then it doesn't happen anymore? You don't have screaming girls chasing after you. Is it difficult to get used to that? I wouldn't say it's difficult to get used to it, but what what's difficult is you don't get your ego massage like that anymore. You see, and that's and that's um, it's a very tough thing for for any sportsman or any rock star or whatever it happens to be who has a lot of adulation from people to all of a sudden stop. You know, and that's a real shock. That's a real shock because you feel like you don't, you don't you simply just don't get the attention that you used to used to have. And some people crave it. As it turned out, I actually. I actually didn't like it at all. I felt really, a lot of the time, I really felt um, invaded. I suppose you know, no privacy. no privacy at all. And I was very, 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 because I had ch children at a young age. I was very adamant that nobody would get involved in in my private life. And and that's a that was a very good boundary or wall to put up, you know, restriction to put up for for people. And it sort of it stays to this day, as I think people respect that anyway and obviously they're probably not, not as interested as they used to be but I just didn't you know never talked about it so so for some for so all that sort of stuff it was it was a bit weird it was a bit weird for me plus I don't like big crowds it always appeared though that you well very keen to become a rock star and a pop star mm -hmm. so isn't that what you really wanted not? I think you did that with John McEnroe oh yeah no the, the full full metal rackets uh, that's right yeah yeah that's what I did <laughs> Did that one with uh, Roger Daltrey and the guys in Iron Maiden. Yeah. So I've been I've been a music fan for forever, and Iron Maiden were one of the first bands that I, I liked as a kid, and, and um, I got to know the guys, you know, really well, and just went to see them t and on touring and travel with them a bit and a couple of days and went to see them in the studio, and that was sort of my that was my switch off. My music was my real switch off. I played guitar, and and so I was a real I was a groupie. You know, basically I was a rock and roll groupie frustrated musician you know I've always wanted to be a, a, a rock star. Would you rather have been a rock star? 
Probably not, looking back at it. I would have probably had more fun doing being a rock star because, I mean, tennis is just very serious, you know. This is very, very tough and tough physically. And, but I think it was probably the better path for me to be on. And God knows I'd probably be dead now. But when I'm playing my music, I can really switch off and let my hair down. And, and um, you know, I like the idea. But see, the, also the other thing is you can be the greatest singer-songwriter in the world or one, you know, a really good singer-songwriter, but because you're not trendy at the time, your skin's right, wrong colour, or your management piss you off, or something goes wrong, you, you know, you never get, you never make a cent. You end up playing on the corner street. You know, so what street went wrong for you then? Because you, didn't you have a recording contract? No, 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 no. I didn't. No, it was just all fun. That was charity. I did stuff for charity. Always done a lot of stuff for charity. So that that one with McEnroe was a. Was it one-off charity? Yeah, so you play the hard rock ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I love playing. I mean, I always get to have a good band, and yeah, I just have fun. Play. You know, some people get sort of in their own head, and you know, I'm, I'm just playing this song, man, because it's a song. You know, this, this is the way I like to play. If I don't like it, then screw. Up. Well, that's all right if you the Beatles or something like that. People listen to anything you play, but. For us, just get up and play rock and roll. You know, just have some fun. You know. So you're saying you never really had any serious musical ambitions at all? It was no. Just fun. Yeah, just fun. That's my rock. That's what it's supposed to be. Mm. That's what it's supposed to be. You know, get up and you have fun and let people sing and dance and jump on stage. And we had a I had a great band uh, here a couple of years ago when I just retired and we went around touring various universities and things like that and and clubs and. Uh, and we just had a blast, you know, we just had so much fun. We had people up on stage dancing and jumping on stage. We were in the crowd half the time. It was just like, it's almost like a cabaret show, you know. <laughs> we, just, we were just having a blast, you know, just having so much fun doing that. But um, Did you ever get offered any TV or movie scripts or anything? Yeah, I've had a couple of little TV, th uh, movie things, a couple of uh, little TV things as well, and one in Australia. But I had a movie script, that, a movie that I, I actually did, but... Something got got delayed in the filming. It was a small, a small short film that they were, I think won an award somewhere. It was uh, Kenneth Branagh was in it. Yeah, well, he heard I was in the movie, so he decided to sign up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you want some acting tips, you know, as beginner as he is. So you know, but I was supposed to get a, a quite a big part in that, but uh, the, the filming got delayed, and I was busy off playing somewhere so so I did I was in off for like one second I mean if you blink you miss me yeah. so I, they had to cut me out of the damn film is that something you, <laughs> is that something you fancied pursuing as well you do quite like yeah some yeah I like to presenting, didn't you? yeah I like doing that it's yeah. good fun I think it's yeah I'd like to do some acting I, mean, yeah. I think I'd be pretty good at it it describes you in your bio here as a former commentator for the BBC does this oh. mean you don't do it anymore no I do it yeah yeah no I've done I don't know why that is, but uh, no, I, I'm do, do the BBC uh, Wimbledon. I'm going to do it for another couple of years at least. I'm now sort of taking on Greg Rosetsky is coaching him or part of the, well, me and my my tennis academy because we've got the tennis academy going. The, the, well, the Cash Hopper system, as we kind of call it, I suppose, uh, which is Gavin Gavin Hopper, who's the mm -hmm. physical and co trainer and coach, and us. We you know we're just taking this really professional attitude and mm. sort of. Uh, we're going to lay it on anybody who's interested in Greg's, uh, you know, he wants to work very hard over the summer of, and, and, or summer in Australia mm. and get himself, uh, have a good year next year so that's exciting for us and he's down there so I'm sending all my um, I'm sending my guys down there to spy on him and to find out, to find out how he's going. Do you think him or Tim will ever win Wimbledon? Because we're beginning to despair. Yeah um, 
Well, you get rid of that bloody Pete Sampras guy, I think there's a good chance, you know. That's a problem. I mean, I really do think that one of them would have won it if it wasn't for Sampras. But, you know, I mean, you, you come up against, you know, one of, if not the greatest grass court player of all time. I mean, you know, it's just bad luck. Yeah. What can you do? You know, you can... Which do you think has got more chance of winning one I don't know. I think they're very. I think they're both very uh, good, very similar players as far as talent, uh, ability, and, and and the ability to actually perform under pressure. I think they both do pretty well, very well. Uh, there's not much in them. I mean, Greg's Greg's had the better results uh, up to date, but Tim's been more consistent. You know, so Greg's been injured. You know, so you know, I'm I'm hoping that we can fix a few of these injuries up and a few of these problems with his game and. And that he can go through, but um, you know Tim's a very talented player. I think uh, you're friends yeah. with a lot of tennis players, especially people from your era. But how do you have a good friendship when you're busy competing against them, and you know for a lot of money and so on? Yeah, no, I don't really like any of them. <laughs> I just pretend I do, to be honest. But how no, do it's, you? it's like that. I mean, you're friends. You've got to be, got to be friends, you know. Because um, you're living together. together. Yeah, yeah, that's this part of the job, though, isn't it? You know, you, you can, yeah, I mean, you can be lawyers and, you know, fight each other in court and then say, say hello to each other afterwards, or um, you, you've got to sort of live with each other in the locker room every day, you know, and, you know, if you, you know, it's like if you have an argument with somebody at work or whatever and you can't look at them in the eyes, but they're, they're going to be there the whole fucking time. Oh, pardon the language. It's awkward. So the way I figured it was, that you're friends with everybody, you know. You're friends with everybody. We're all in the same boat, you know. We're all just trying to make a living, and it's just we just happen to be fighting against each other. And you got to respect the guy. I think the more you respect them, the better you, the better you perform against them. With all respect, you say make a living. I mean, you make an absolute fortune playing tennis the way you did. I mean, do you not think it's an obscene amount of money? I think now it is, yeah. And you play tennis. But then it wasn't. I don't think then it was. I think now, yeah, I think the prize money is too high. Um, well, certainly, I think distributed. They, they have, need to have a good look at the way that the prize money is distributed. But you, you make millions from the game. You can't deny that. It's in. Well, I did for a while before I got injured. Yeah. yeah. Do you not? Think yeah, but it's not like that? now. I mean, now is a different story. That's mm. a complete different ball game. I made when I won Wimbledon. I made. I think it was three hundred and. $50,000. Oh, yes. What do you get as a result of sponsorship deals? And yeah, sure. No, but what I'm saying now is that um, Sampras, I think, makes £750,000. You know? I mean, that's in 10, 12, 12 years. I mean, that's a huge increase. But don't, don't you feel guilty taking that kind of money when you see, like, heart surgeons and things not getting paid, you know, a zillionth of what you get? Oh, we all have different skills, you know, we have different skills. The fact of the matter is that people want to watch my skill and they don't particularly want to watch some guy cutting somebody else open. Mm. The bottom line is, is that it's all market value, you know. You know, I don't think I'm the, you know, the bee's knees or, or, or whatever, but people like to come and watch tennis. People like to, to play and watch golf. So there'll always be a market there. When people want to pay tickets and they want to watch somebody play, then... The fair thing is that whoever puts the event on makes some money, but of course the performers. Mm. The bottom line is we are performers, like we're a rock show. You know, our rock show is coming into town, and whether we get up and sing, uh, we play music, uh, whether we talk or we happen to play tennis, people come along, they want to watch, and they want to watch it on TV. So we get paid for it. You know, it's just it's business. Have you been smart with your money? Have you did you invest it right from the start? 
Um, my dad did, thank God. <laughs> Me, I'd probably put it in, in, a, in a guitars or something, <laughs> which actually wouldn't have been a bad investment, considering what, how much Jimi Hendrix's guitars go for. But my dad was my manager. He's a lawyer, and he kept a very close eye on that. Yes which was great, because uh, that is a real, you know, about managers ripping people off. You don't hear it so much in tennis, but I mean, music you do. You know, so I was very lucky that my dad was uh, able to look after all my... The thing is, for tennis players, you have so much excitement and thrill in your early life and so much money as well, is what to do next. Were you worried before you retired what you would do with yourself? I think everybody is, yeah. Uh, especially, I think, it is. there's always a worry that you know, next week you might break your leg, you get hit by a bus or whatever, or whatever. I was lucky enough, I was good enough to know that I could keep going, I could make, could make money as long as I was out there playing. But, you know, I kept getting injured all the time. That is a big worry. The only thing I can say is that I was lucky enough and unlucky enough that I had time in between my career. I mean, too much time, really, but through all those injuries, you know, the knees, the knees in the back and the Achilles tendon. You know, I had, in the peak of my career... I had all that time to think about the future and, and maybe to plan the future. Well, not that I planned it very well. What though. were your plans, though? I mean... Well, my plans were not to do any commentating, not to do any coaching, and not to do uh, not to do any news, newspaper writing or anything like that. And now you're doing. I'm doing them all. <laughs> Can you believe it? I said no, I'm not going to do that. That's not. I do not want to yeah. do any of that stuff. And it's amazing how things just change. Isn't boredom the biggest fear of, of an ex-professional? Well, I think it could be. Um, it can ruin people. It can. There's, I think, it was, as you are talking about before, it's a contrast between getting all the adulation, being busy all the time, and then all of a sudden just stopping. It's like, that's the scary thing. A lot of the guys drink a lot. You know, there's no doubts about that. A lot of, I mean, some of the, I would say you know, quite a few of them are alcoholics, you know, but um, that's no different in tennis, soccer, or any sport, or any people, for that matter. It's just the way, it's just the way it is. And I think you find the people who keep themselves busy... You know, McEnroe's got his art gallery. Uh, Jimmy Connors has his, got his various business projects. You know, Lendl's um, got his paintings. Lendl, has got yeah, and he's golf. Lendl plays yeah, golf yeah. all the time. You know, he's a golf player these days. You know, so I think people who are really motivated, hardworking people will find other things to do. I think it's, it's just definitely a real danger in sitting back at home. You know, before you know, you know, you'd be bored out of your mind. Presumably, you're really glad. I mean, people would have said at the time when you had kids, you know, what are you doing having kids now? You need to concentrate on your tennis. And yet now, you must be really glad because it gives you a lot of raison d'etre, really. You know, it's, it's, it was tough to... Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, clearly, I love, I love the, my kids. I had kids very young age. You know, 21, my son was born, same day, same 21st birthday, you know. So I always had children around, and I, I, I just wanted to spend time with them. You know, that's important. That's important to me. But yeah, you know, it's also very tough when you're actually in your career. You know, a lot of the time, it, it looks. I'm not saying tennis isn't glamorous, and to an extent, it is very glamorous. But of the people you see out there, the, the people you see making millions of dollars, there is thousands and thousands of them who don't. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. and uh, you know that's that's always you know that's always a uh, you know a real a real worry for for anybody and. You know, to make the most of it, you have to be like any businessman who's running a company, and you have to be very single-minded, very uh, focused, and you know you have to, to a certain ex extent, neglect your family. And you know, I was lucky enough to have my family on the road and my kids on the road with me and my wife. 
but again, that, that can be unhealthy as well, you know, so you just can't have it all, you know, the balance of family, uh, home life, uh, you know, tennis, taking responsibility or letting somebody else look after your finances, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's very, very hard to, to do, you know. Was the downfall of Bjorn Borg a real lesson to you? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I think, I think it was a bit of a shock to everybody, but I really hadn't heard much about him. You know, I just heard bits and pieces. For me, I just heard bits and pieces. I think John McEnroe was pretty shocked, pretty up, upset by the, the rumours anyway. I know Bjorn, having talked to him, you know, I was one of his uh, biggest fans, and having talked to him on the senior circuit now that he's finishing, he's finishing the senior circuit, and I'm certainly picking his brains the last couple of years, the last year or so, I played him last week in the tournament a week before. You know, I was asking him all those sort of questions. Like, you know, how did your company go? What did you do? You know, what happened? Does he tell and, you? Yeah, he, he, he told me. He said, look, it's not, it's not true what they all said. Mm. And, and I believe him. But I do. I'm sure he did lose a lot of money, but he still had that clothing company that was has done very, very well. Mm. And he deserves it, you know. And I, I mean, I'm so happy that he's... He's done well, but it is a shock, yeah, it's a worry. I mean, I think more than anything, the biggest shock for me was when Michael Hutchins died. For me, that, was, that, that changed my life when, when he died. Because he was a guy who had absolutely everything, you know? He had a beautiful child, he had girls who wanted him, he was a rock star, he had millions of bucks, he was travelling around the world. I mean, that was my dream. Was he a friend of yours? Yeah, he was a friend of mine, yeah. I mean, not a close acquaintance, but, I, you know... I did hang out with him quite a bit over the years, and and that was just a because uh, when I heard about it, I thought it was suicide. And I suppose nobody really knows for sure what it was. It's claimed it was suicide, but it probably wasn't. To me, that was just a complete shock. I went, oh my god, you know. And there I was, sort of recovering from injuries, playing some shitty tournaments that I didn't really want to play. I was at the end of my career, and I was miserable. I was cold. I was in some shitty hotel, and I just said, that's it. That was the decision I made. I said, I'm retiring. Mm. And that was the one that really hit home. I said, you know, all this guy's got everything and he mm. just kills himself. Then, you know, happiness is not in in that. It's it's in something else. So, How long will you carry on playing with the, the over 35s? Or well, I'm only 35 now, so I've, I've sort of played on and off the last couple of years. Uh, just a few a few events that they allowed me into. The way I figure is as long as I keep in my cod liver oil, my knees hold mm. up and I'll keep playing. Mm. <laughs> when and why did you move to England? Just a practicality, really. I, I used to, I came here for during Wimbledon as a junior in you know eighty one, eighty two, whatever, and spent you know three or four weeks here playing on the grass and those lead up tournaments and all that sort of stuff. So I got to know the place a little bit. I got to know this area, mm-hmm. you know, Queens, Wimbledon, blah blah. And I used to pop in and see some concerts, um, you know, rock concerts every while, Hammersmith Odeon, and go see White Snake and <laughs> stuff like that. So really, I got to know a few people and got to know the area a bit, and I liked it. So, you know, you've got to travel, so you've got to be out of somewhere. Australia's just too far, you know. But English people dream of living in Australia because of the climate and the yeah. lifestyle. Well, I'm going to go back there. I'm, you know, I, I was travelling a lot, so for me, it was, it's perfect. I mean, London's a great city, you know, to have fun and be single. Or, but when you want to settle down, I think Australia's a better place. And, you know, so I'm doing that. I'm getting my tennis academy, you know, the Cash Hopper Academy. They're starting up and I'll be moving back there. So I've been here for 15 years, but I'm actually, for the first time, I'm going to be calling Australia home uh, for first time for 15 years. Does this mean you're up sticks and leaving then? No, not completely. No, I'll definitely still be here, have a house. I'll be doing Wimbledon commentating. I'll be, 
you know, obviously I'm, I'm going to be involved with the Rosetsky in, in some form this year. And, you know, I have two children that live in Norway, so I'm going to be around here, but I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to, if I'm going to uproot the boys for the time being or whatever. So it's going to be a gradual process, and, and I'd like to um, start up the Cash Hopper Academy out here, mm. you know, do something in England. And I think that's, that's a good possibility as well at some stage. It's very difficult for you because your heart's partly in Australia, partly here and partly in Norway. Mm. Yeah, no, it's... A real wrench, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I can't really win either way, you know. I mean, that's what I'm doing, flying up to Norway for a couple of days next week. So I haven't seen the kids for a few weeks. And, you know, I've been away for three weeks, come back here, spend a week, two weeks with the boys up there. And that's the life. That's my life, really. That's my life. Uh, yeah, I, I want to have uh, I want to have everything. You know, I suppose the ideal thing is to spend six months in Australia and six months here. Mm. You know, I mean, all around Europe, and, and, and so so that's what I'm doing. I sort of thought, wow, I, I can actually, I've actually got the ability now to do it, <laughs> which, is, which is which is nice. Um, what kind of home do you have in Australia? Was that your I don't have anything, yeah, no, I don't have anything. I've got a block of land in right. Queensland. Which, which you're going to develop, eh? Well, it's just a little too far away from the tennis academy mm. to, for me to live in, so I'm not too sure what I'm going to do. I don't know. I mean, I'm just going to try and... We're going to get this tennis academy set up, get where's, that going. Where's, where's that in Australia? In Surface Paradise. Right. It's where the... It's, it's actually in Runaway Bay. That's where the, the, the British Olympic team trained before the Olympics. Can you tell us of your home over here? Just, can you tell us anything about your home here? Well, it's five bedrooms, which... Uh, one of the bedrooms is... My son's has got all the music stuff, music and computer in there. He's 14 now. He loves that stuff. So he's on the computer and playing all the music. Um, uh, I've got a garage, which is very handy, very handy, and really a double-length garage. So I put a gym in one end. I've got a boxing bag and speedball and free weights and treadmill. Um, everything's crammed in there, all with my crappy old tennis gear and everything else that goes with it. It's very cosy. It's um, it's near Fulham Football Ground, right, right in that area. Are you so a it's, fan, are you? Uh, well, I have to follow him because uh, so many of them are running around Saturday afternoons. So I can't park my bloody car. I thought so you'd have a mansion in Wimbledon near the tennis or something. You never fancied that. First of all, a big mansion like that would cost absolutely heaps, millions. And, you know, I didn't have millions to throw around when I first moved here. Yeah. Simple as that, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I found that when I did want to move, you know, I found the time to move was I was injured and I didn't know if I was ever going to be playing tennis again. Mm. I mean, believe me, I've heard that three times. I'd never be able to play tennis again or never at top level. One with my bag and twice with my knee. Mm. You know, when somebody, when an expert tells you that, you, you go, shoot, it's not time to go start buying, you know, a ten-bedroom house. So, you know, I never really got around to doing it. I mean, I would have liked to get a bigger place, a bit closer to Wimbledon, exactly, mm -hmm. or Barnes or somewhere like that, but, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm happy where I am. Mm -hmm. You know, that's fine. That's, that's good enough for me. This is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the second of my interviews with Pat Cash. This also in London, but in 2021, when again we discussed his famous Wimbledon win in 1987. When did you first think you might actually win it, you'd have a chance? Was it only in 87 you thought? I always dream of it as a kid. Did you? But no, I think in 84 I had a good year and I got to semi-final US and, and then I got injured after that. But I thought, you know, I've got... I got a chance, yeah. you know, and, and, but you know, I had to get myself fitter and faster and all that sort of stuff, stronger after the injury, after and the you, back injury. You were favourite in 87, Lendl didn't like the cross. In the final, I don't know if I was favourite. I mean, I thought I'd 
I was going to win. I think people who really knew, knew tennis would thought that I had a very good chance. Yes. But you were but, 22, you know, weren't you? 22, yeah. Incredible. Well, not when you think about Boris. Boris no, already no, won no. two, and no, he was no, no, 17 true. and 18. There was the years, year yeah. where you actually, at the age of 22, 23, you're thinking, well, yeah. why haven't I? Because Bill Ander won when he was French Open, he was yeah. 17. Michael Chang, well, Steffi Graf came along around just after that. She won, she was 15, and Hingis and Boris Becker, 17. I mean, it was unbelievable. You know, I felt that I could, I could win it. My, my ideal was like I would win it. So I had a plan, I had a team around me, which was really the first team that, that we saw on the on the world circuit uh, you know trainer part-time a sports psychologist part-time physio visit from from the from time to time and a, and a coach and you know we uh, I suppose you know thought that you know I could max, try and try and maximize my potential I mean that's what it was about and if that meant that I'd get to a Grand Slam final or win a Davis Cup or whatever then that was it and but I thought that grass was a good surface for me. Oh, yeah, we, yeah. Played, we played the Australian Open on the grass. So I had opportunities to play on it. So, but growing up as a kid, I wasn't a grass court player at all. Did you think you'd ball. win more slams after winning one? Um, Did you kind of assume that you would? No, not at all. Not at all. Not. I, I really wanted to win the Australian Open. I wanted to win yeah. all the slams. I, I think realistically, I didn't think I'd win the French Open. It's just the yeah. court was too slow for yeah. me. But I thought I could win the US Open and the Australian Open. And uh, you know, I went bloody close to those two Australian Open finals. I lost, you know, yes. lot, lot close five set matches. The Swedes. The Swedes. Yeah. Do um, so you spend a lot of time since then thinking about those matches? Thinking, God, if I, but do you even play them back on video? No, I God, don't I play them back. That was funny because a friend of mine, a few several years ago, was uh, in California, and he said, "Look, look, it came up. I recorded it." Yeah. I came up on, t on TV as a classic match. Um, it was the 87 uh, Edberg Australian yeah. Open final, and, yeah. um, and it was very interesting. I actually have recently gone back and had a look at both those matches: uh, the sets 87 against Edberg, and then the 88 against Villander. Villander. Yeah. And in 87, I had a bad, bad shoulder. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't have played. It was any other yeah. any other match. Any other time other than a Wimbledon final, I would have defaulted and not played. Yeah. I almost won, as it turned out. But yeah. then the next year, you could see the difference how much harder I was hitting the ball yeah. serving. You know, I was like, and so you, you see that you go, yeah. but just they Still, didn't. a glitter in Korea, nonetheless. That's that's, that's life. The, the the famous climb, the famous climb on centre court. Did you plan that beforehand? Did you always say, if I win this tournament, I'm going out there in the crowd? Um, I did plan it, but I only thought about it. I thought about it. I remember almost exactly when I thought about it. It was uh, I was in the U.S. and for some reason it came to my mind. Why is not he? When he climbed through, I thought, you know, I'm going to win this year. And I, when I do that, I'll climb through the stands. So that'd be cool. And that was it. I didn't honestly didn't think about it until the night before, when I was in my front living room. Everybody was sort of pottering around. I was watching a movie. Uh, I'd gone up and got my. One of, the, one of the weirdest things about playing in the final is that you've got to get back in those days. Was you had to you had to get a go and go to a tuxedo dinner oh, jacket yeah. rental place. Yeah. Now they've got you know, 30 dinner jackets for guys who might yeah, they're yeah. all in the locker room. <laughs> so they can just go and yeah, yeah, yeah. put one on, and then yeah, yeah. you go to the official dinner. 
happened, but those days you didn't, so I had to go up to Moss Brothers here at Hammersmith. Oh, yeah, Moss Brothers. And, yeah, and then... Uh, Did you want to and, do the get time, Pat, because you want to share that moment with the people who'd helped you and supported you? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. It just didn't feel... It didn't... So the night before, I was sitting there and I just thought, yeah, I'm going to climb up tomorrow when I win. Did you and tell everyone? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Well, I didn't want to jinx it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to jinx it, so yeah. I'm telling mouthing off. And then my father was always like, he said, no, never talk about what you're going to do or what you're going to achieve. Keep it low key, low key. Right. And he was a very private person. Yeah, so I thought. I thought about it. I had no planning in it at all, other than the fact that when I went to shake Ivan's hand, and then of course the umpire, and and I turned around, and I sort of wait, you know, going yes. like that, putting my through my bag, my racket down, and. And, and then, as you know, at Wimbledon, they're, they're so efficient at getting everything set up for yeah, the yeah, ceremony. Yeah, it happens in a flash. Yes. And I looked to my right, and then they were all starting to come the out. Table the, the, yeah, exactly. The ball exactly boys lined up. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, if I don't do it now, and so it looked like I was sort of, I didn't really plan it very well. I thought, yeah. you know, I could take my time and then go up yeah, there. Yeah. And I was like, no, I better do it now. So it looked like. I had actually thought about it. It was something I wanted to do to, to to thank them, but I hadn't planned it very well, and I didn't want to think too much about it because it's been <laughs> it. ever since, hasn't it? I mean, yeah, it was. It was a natural thing. I think yeah, that's, yeah. that was the that was the thing. I, I thought, why hasn't anybody done this before? You know, but sure. it's called the sort of pack clash, clash climb. climb. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It is. <laughs> it is now. And Ash got a bit confused this year. Didn't yeah, she? hers was. Yeah, she went. She was trying to do exactly what I did. I think somebody <laughs> told her you got to climb on the commentating box. So that's what I did. They've got no, a gate now. They've they got a gate and some yeah. stairs, which is makes makes sense. But yeah, you want to share that moment with the people. Yeah. Here. And there was yeah. the mother of my 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 son, of course, was was up there as well, yeah. and he was in the he was in the creche. So it was uh, it was a really special. Moment. My sister was there. My, my mum was wasn't there. She she used to keep the the house running back in, at home. But uh, yeah, my sister was there and, and my uncle. Uh, so it was a a very very special Fantastic moment. And moment, I, yeah. I'm not sure, but I think that might be the head man I stole back off my uncle. <laughs> he took it. Right. You, if you see the climb, he oh, goes to grab it, and I go, there you go. <laughs> My dad grabbed the base, and you're not having that. <laughs> must have been a few of them in that final leg, because you went through them in the match, didn't you? Mm. You didn't just wear one the whole match. Yeah, I probably had maybe half a dozen or so. Yeah. And they were the toweling ones, so they absorbed a little bit more. I mean, now yeah. I've got some more modern ones, but yeah. um, that's about all I had. So what year did you first toss those headbands into the crowd? That was 85, 85, 86. And first broke through and, and I had a f just a few of them. Um, yeah. And I threw out. And it, it was all over the, all over the uh, newspapers and all yeah. over the... I don't know, there was a policeman, there was a policeman there and he <laughs> I gave him one, I wrapped one around his, uh, his hat and, it, <laughs> and next thing you know, it was... I just thought it was fun because I always, as a kid, I remember getting a wristband oh. off a... Uh, of one of the players at the Kuyong in the Australian Open. Who was it? I'm not sure, but I think it was actually, ironically, the guy that I ended up touring with, Ray Ruffles. I'm pretty sure it was him. So I always remembered that as, as, a, as the biggest thrill. And me and yeah. my brother were talking about it on the way home yeah. and how cool it was, and we'd wear it around the house. Yeah, brilliant. And I always remember, I thought, you know, that was the coolest thing. Yeah. And so Love always, always did that. And, and yeah. that's, I suppose, it's become another yeah. trend of players that do it. 
back in my day, you know, we, you travel with a bag and that was it. Yeah. You know, yeah, that was it for the year sort of thing of headbands yeah. and wristbands. I mean, these days you just call up and say, can I have a 50 headbands? <laughs> sure, Roger. Boom, they'll be there tomorrow at 9 a.m. You know, <clears throat> back in my day, you didn't have that opportunity. You'd be lucky to get some strings somewhere along yeah. the line. <laughs> and am I right in thinking that when you win Wimbledon, you automatically become a member? Correct. So Ash Barty's now a member Correct. of the All England Club, Yes. Right? So she had to see photos of her even just as she's holding the trophy up on the, yeah. she's got her members badge straight away. How important a part of the winning was that for you to be a member of the greatest tennis club? Very much, very much, because winning Wimbledon is, you know, is the pinnacle of anybody's career. I mean, uh, maybe the French, this is from French players, or they say, you know, French Open or US players might say, but it is the most prestigious tournament. And for an Australian, we've had a lot of great history of of, of, of success over here and. It's fruitful. If winning Wimbledon is, I mean, I've always said it. It's not actually the toughest tournament to win. It's actually probably the easiest of the slams to win because the conditions, it's, they're soft on the grass. Uh, you know, it's not 40 degree heat like it can be in Australia or, or New York, and the rallies don't go on and on and on like they do in Paris. But it's it's tricky. It's a different sort of skill, um, which is lucky that I, that I had that. But you know, there's been many a great player who won seven, you know, lots of French Opens and couldn't win a match on the grass, but. So you yeah, live, so you're living in South West London, you're not far from Wimbledon, how often do you go down there as a member, as your winner with your members tie on it? Uh, reasonably often. I, I try to get involved in the, some of the social stuff and, and these days and, and play uh, members, some of the members days and uh, they just, I, I had to cancel because I wasn't back in time for Norway but they had a, a day where they had the families and I was going to go out there and be one of the coaches. Um, really nice club and it's actually you think it's really quite stuffy and uh, i think initially it probably was um, but it's, it's quite a young club now yeah, it's, it's very younger and younger uh, and really really good people really nice people um, obviously it's extremely well organized it's an unbelievable facility but uh, yeah i'll take a couple of people down now that i'm back uh, i'll take a couple of friends down there to have a hit and, and we'll just have a cup of tea in the in the in the oh, that's but it, it, to, to be a member of that club with all the great names that I yes. grew up with. You know, I love, the history was one of the things in, my, in school that, that I, I enjoyed. Yeah. There very few things I did enjoy in school, other than sport. And I do love the history of tennis and Australian tennis. And I, I'm always, still always learning. I'm always, and you know, it's very rarely I walk down those halls and I don't stop and, and have a look at the paint photos again. And, no. oh, okay, I didn't know that. You're learning something every time you walk into that club. And it's like your name's still on the board. And <laughs> yeah, I do. I gotta say, I do. They walk yeah. past it every time and, and, yeah. and check. Oh. Uh, it's still there. <laughs> and the trophy's there. You can see my name. It's really hidden around the back there. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be one of those, part of, part of those names. Yeah. yeah.